optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types, to tease out the routines, habits, and so on that you can apply to your own life. This is a special in-between episode, which serves as a recap of the episodes from the last month. Features a short clip from each conversation in one place, so you can jump around, get a feel for both the episode and the guest, and then you can always dig deeper by going to one of those episodes. View this episode as a buffet to whet your appetite. It's a lot of fun. We had fun putting it together. And for the full list of the guests featured today, see the episode's description, probably right below wherever you press play in your podcast app. Or as usual, you can head to tim.blog podcast and find all the details there. Please enjoy. First up, Edward O. Thorpe. Edward was one of the world's best blackjack players and investors and his hedge funds were profitable every year for 29 years. He is the author of Beat the Dealer, Beat the Market, and A Man for All Markets, From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market. Now, I want to take a step back just for, for people who are listening and say that there are many reasons that I wanted to have this conversation with you. And... It is not specifically related to gambling in the sense that what most there there are many things that interest me about your life and your thinking. And my hope is that for people listening, they get a window into at least two things. One would be your methods of thinking, frames and works for thinking, how you think about thinking, and then also your personal approach to health and fitness. And because as people may have picked up with some of the references, could you tell everyone listening what your age is as we speak today? I'm 89. And for those people who can't see video, you look like you're in your 60s. And I am just beyond excited to, to hop right into that. So we're going to jump around quite a bit. We won't do this exactly chronologically, but could you perhaps describe your approach to health and fitness. And you could tackle that starting wherever you like. Is it just that you you were given the right parents and out of the box have tremendous genetics? Is there more to it? How would you begin to unpack this? I kind of wandered into health and fitness by accident initially, just like I wandered into blackjack and roulette. I'm curious and always looking for things to understand. I like the idea of self-improvement too. So I was walking behind the student co-op one night when I was about 20, and I heard a bunch of clanking. And I looked down in the basement, and there were some uh, fairly burly guys down there pumping iron. And I walked in, and I said, you know, this is, this is a waste of time. This is ridiculous. So one of them said to me, I'll bet you a milkshake that if you work out with us for a year, just one hour an evening, three evenings a week, you'll double your strength in a set of exercises that they... Uh, described. So I said, I don't believe it. Let's try it. So I went down and uh, the four exercises were the squat with a barbell on a rack, the military overhead press, the bench press, and uh, deadlift. It wasn't deadlift. It was something else. I forget the fourth one at the moment, but I'll think of it. Yeah. Clean and jerk, maybe. Who knows? Or bent row. It was something along those lines. But a compound exercise like, like the others. Yeah. So there was a fourth exercise. So anyhow, what happened was I was a, uh, I wouldn't say 98-pound weakling, but maybe a 150-pound weakling. And <laughs> at the end of a year, I could uh, military press 185, which uh, was at least double what I started with. I could bench press 375. I could do 15 at uh, 325. And I could, yeah, I could squat with 375. I could do sets. I forget what the other one was. Wish I could remember it. In any case, I was astounded that all this uh, came to pass. 
So maybe pay attention to uh, strength at least. And some time went by, and I did a little swimming because I got interested in scuba diving. And then uh, one day in my 30s, I was jogging along the beach with my uh, brother-in-law, and he said, let's go for a little jog. I went for about a quarter mile, and I was gasping. I was 35 then, I remember. I said, this is awful. I'm, I'm in terrible shape. I have to do something about this. So they had a book on aerobics by somebody named Ken Cooper, who has a, had a lab down in Texas and started, in large part, the aerobics a revolution that uh, swept the country. So I started keeping track of his points. He gave you points for uh, various degrees of aerobic effort. I think if you did a mile in between 12 and 15 minutes, you got one point, and you did between like 10 and a half and 12, you got two points, and so forth. So I started trying to run a mile a day, and I did that. Well, I ran a mile every Saturday to start with. And then one Saturday, I decided to try a little further. So I ran two, and then three. And then I said, I'll, I'll try a 10-mile race. So I got into a 10-mile race, which was uh, kind of foolish. But I finished, and I did, I did reasonably well. So then I said, I'll try a marathon. So then I got into marathon running. And I really liked that. I did that for about uh, 20 years until I uh, hurt my back weightlifting. All my uh, bad events have been from pushing myself athletically. So hurting my back <laughs> yeah. was uh, probably the worst single thing. It herniated a disc, so I had to stop Had to stop heavy pounding and heavy running. But 20 years of uh, road running, well, more than that, maybe 25 years, and uh, marathoning gave me, I think, a very good base for going forward. And so now I do things like a walk about three miles, three or four times a week. And I spend about two days in the gym doing stretching and uh, strength exercising, core strengthening, and so on. A lot of emphasis on core because of my back, which is just fine now. I was just going to ask how your approach, it seems like it has evolved and changed over time, say after 50 years of age or in the last say, 40 years or so, are there any particular changes that you made in addition to the core strengthening to support the back that you think have contributed to your longevity? I've evolved. I try to listen to my body. So I do what I enjoy. And the rule I started to follow was some is better than none. And more up to a point is better than less. So there's there's no excuse. I mean, if you tell yourself, gee, I'm not going to do this because I can't do the whole program, that's a big mistake. Just start doing it. And I find that if you start doing it and you get used to it, you find more and more things that you kind of like that you can build on, and then you just keep getting better at it. I was probably in my best shape at around uh, 55 to 65 because of all this. That is inspiring. I am just about to turn 45, and even amongst my just to say age cohort, it's very common for me to see people giving up even in their 40s and blaming it on age. But with you sitting in front of me describing your trajectory and sort of adaptive habits, I feel like those, those excuses don't hold a whole lot of weight. One thing that's pretty neat is uh, race walking. I did that for a while. And that's something that is uh, lower impact than running but you can get the same kind of aerobic workout. So that's something I direct people towards. What does your strength training look like now or over the last few decades? Well, it's as I get older, it declines. I get weaker and it gets a little harder to do things. And I feel a little tired or I can't do as many uh, reps or sets of things. So I have a mix of things that I do now. I will do squats usually now just body weight and i try to i'll do dumbbell squats or lunges with a lot of emphasis on one leg and then shift and do a lot a lot of uh, weight on the other leg do pull-ups i think the best i've done recently which is not very much is uh, four underhand pull-ups and two overhand pull-ups 10 years ago i could do a dozen of each well i do a lot of back exercises regularly on the mat. And that's very helpful for keeping my back in shape and keeping my core in pretty good condition. Next up, Morgan Fallon, a nine-time Emmy-nominated executive producer, director, 
and cinematographer. Morgan shot, directed, and produced throughout the 103-episode run of the series Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. So let's talk about different types of high standards. Could you elaborate on Tony's particular species of high standards? And if you have any funny stories, that's always great. But you know, any, any stories that come to mind are also super helpful. And just so you know where this is going, I'm wondering like, how it contrasts with, say, a Michael Mann. Or I don't think you've had experience with like James Cameron, but like James Cameron, another person who's really famous for having extremely high yeah. standards. And, uh, you know, where the line is between being like brutally direct and turning into something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I do. I'd love to explore that because this is something I struggle with also. So speaking at the very high end, you were speaking about the Michael Manns, the James Camerons, the level of expectation is never achievable. It's never good enough. They do yeah. not have a level where it's good enough. It can always be better. You have to be that way. Yes, they are assholes. I will say it straight up. Michael Mann is an asshole. And he's known that way in the industry. But he has to be. That is the only way that you get that caliber of project done. You want to get through a Titanic? You are going to have to be an asshole. 100%. And the same is true in high-caliber kitchens. You want to run a high-caliber kitchen? There is only one way to do it. And you are not friends with your crew. You are in charge and it's your responsibility. And, and I think that Tony, Tony approached it from that perspective, at least initially. He had extremely high expectations that I think were based on his history of knowing how to run an effective kitchen. And at the same time, he had all kinds of his own neuroses and stuff that bled into that. And you see it in Roadrunner. I actually, one of the parts I really liked was when he talks about, hey, I'm not going to stop for the cameras. You guys learn how to get fast. You get fast, I do what I do. <laughs> and that was, I loved yeah. that because I could do it. I was fast and I loved working fast like that. So yeah, super high standards. With Tony though, different than like Michael and James Cameron. And I, and I have not worked with James Cameron. I know a number of people who have though. I don't think you're ever going to get that moment with Michael or with someone like Michael Mann or someone like James Cameron where you're like sitting down and drinking beers with them out in the desert and talking about like right. life and things that really mean something. And like with Tony, you did. And that was the difference. He was actually, he was a friend and a very, very important friend who I miss every single day. He was not those guys. He wasn't an asshole. He could be an asshole. He could be an asshole all the time. He could be incredibly frustrating to work with. But there was something under it. There was something very loving there. There was something very caring. And once you were kind of in his sphere, he really did care about people. So from that perspective, it was different. From the work perspective, though, he wasn't going to mince words in the same way that he wasn't going to mince words when a dish isn't right in the kitchen. Like, you can't. It doesn't work that way. Unless you want 20 fucking risottos sent back, you better get the first one right. <laughs> and when someone fucks it up, you better let them know that they fucked it up big time right now, immediately, and correct the problem. And that was a lot of the process with Tony in post for sure. In the field, it was more like things that were cumbersome or inconvenience, Tony. He didn't like messiness. He didn't like sitting around and like, you know, that. When shit goes south on a crew, I mean, my God, we just look like a bunch of chickens with our heads cut off running around trying to make shit happen or trying to make <laughs> shit work. And there's a lot of reasons that that can happen. You know, he didn't like any of that. And you'd, you'd hear about unfucking yourself quite a bit in those moments. But when it came to posts, like, <laughs> that's a much more calculated thing. And like, I would send him yeah. rough cuts, and everyone has been through this. I would send him rough cuts where, from the very beginning, he's like, what possible reason do you have for presenting me with this piece of garbage? I didn't work so hard, dot, 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 in full caps. You didn't work so hard to have your work flushed down the toilet by this asshole editor. <laughs> and you're like, oh, Okay. Are we going to like, are we going to go in a constructive direction? Like, what do you, you know, 
but he would. And that's the, that was the thing about him is that the good ones are right. You know, Michael Mann, as much of an asshole as he was to people like you'd have to kind of be like, well, he's right though. (laughs) You know, he's right. (laughs) He knows. And he's right. He's not wrong with Tony. I also like 90% of the time he was, he was right. And it wasn't up to the standards. What was cool about Tony is that then he would go on and work the material. You would start reforming it. You'd start working with him. He'd give constructive notes. And that's something that I tell people or try to explain to people. And I think that people should know about him. And something I do, you know, kind of wish they had said in Roadrunner too. Tony was, you know, he's like, you go on his Wikipedia and it's like celebrity chef. And it's like, yeah, that's not how I think of him. And he wasn't that great of a chef. Also, just that label doesn't, I, and I didn't know him at all, but yeah. the, the label doesn't make any sense. It sounds so hollow to me, given the breadth of what he did. Yeah, totally. Right. 100%. To me, what he was more than anything else within my sphere of working with him was he was a absolutely incredible television producer. And he understood story. He understood story structure. He understood cinematography. He understood using the tools of film to make something that was cinematic. Even though we were on, you know, making our little show on TV, it was like it always wanted to be a feature film. And so we were using our limited resources to get as close to that benchmark as possible. It should look beautiful. The framing should be great. The lighting should be great. The music needs to be great. The editing, the pace, the buildup, the way that you present subjects, you know, all of that stuff needs to be like at the highest level. And that's what people are seeing. I I think when they respond to the show and the kind of response that the show has gotten, which is really incredible, they're seeing a couple things. Authenticity, because we never did shit twice. We never faked anything. That's all real. Everything you see is real. We didn't set up shots. We didn't call cut. We didn't call action. We got fast. We did what he told us to do. We got fast. You see authenticity and you see just a very, very high level of production value given our resources. And I think it's something that something that I constantly want to point out to people is like, look at the weight classes that we were punching in. We were way out of our group. We're going out on shows where we're shooting for seven days in the field. We had a $3,000 external equipment rental budget (laughs) and we're getting cinematography (laughs) nominations my last cinematography nomination was up against free solo it was up against free solo we're punching way out of our class and that was because of the very high standards and that can only come from the top we were down with it because over the time he was powerful enough and the the show was magnetic enough to pull in people who were very talented who were gifted who really wanted to do like good work and push the genre as far as they could. But that comes from the top. And that was Tony. That's what you get from that impeccable nature of like, no, everything needs to be good. And also you just, Tony was so fucking cool that you like, you, you really wanted to please him on my wall. I have framed the best email I ever got from him. It was when I sent him the first act of the Nigeria show that we shot in Lagos and it just says out fucking standing with two exclamation points. And then under it, it says, couldn't be happier. And I framed it and I put it <laughs> on my wall. So maybe that, that tells is you so a little cool. bit. I mean, that's like the highest moment of my career. So next up, Richard Wiseman, author of the luck factor, the scientific study of the lucky mind and 59 seconds. Think a little, change a lot. You mentioned dreams earlier. You're fascinated by dreaming. Why are you fascinated by dreaming? Because I can't believe how much goes on in my head when I, I mean, just think about it. Oh, all of our heads. We fall asleep and then you wake up eight hours later and you don't remember a thing. You think, oh, I've been out of action for that time. And what we know is that people are going through a very predictable sleep cycle. There's all sorts of repair going on to the brain and the body. And then about four or five times, you go into dream sleep and you have these really weird dreams. And what's phenomenal is the research is now showing us that these dreams are not random. They are 
our minds working through anxieties and our worries and trying to either knock the edge off of some of those anxieties or problem solve. And what I find incredible is the number of times I have woken up with a solution to an experiment or an idea or a book fully formed in my head the first thing in the morning. It's happened to me again and again, and often with magic, actually. So a friend of mine was doing a television show here, and I wasn't really thinking about it. When I woke up in the morning, boom, I'd got the entire item in my head, even to down where the camera angles were and everything. And I just find that incredible. There's so much going on offline, as it were. I share this interest. I'm reading a book right now by Matt Walker, Why We Sleep. And for those who are curious, Matt is a very credible scientist. He really he really knows uh, his neuroscience. Fantastic book. It goes more into the the why and how and specifics of, of sleep without a specific focus on dreaming. But I uh, read a book when I was in college. So the very beginning, undergrad, I was neuroscience for a period of time, then couldn't do the animal testing necessary to work in the lab I wanted to be part of, which was with Barry Jacobs. Not saying I oppose it completely. I just couldn't be hands-on with it at the time. And I read a book named Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming by Stephen LaBerge, which I found to be very practical. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on lucid dreaming, but it does seem like you can experimentally demonstrate that it exists just through oh, yeah. IQing and, and yeah. tracking. And you can improve it as a trainable skill through journaling and waking up at odd hours and doing various things. Like I think mnemonic-induced lucid dreaming, MILD is one acronym. Do you have any experience with or thoughts on lucid dreaming? Unfortunately, no. I mean, I did a book called Sleep School, uh, Night School, sorry. It'd be good if I remembered the title of my own uh, book, Night School. <laughs> Uh, and uh, sleep deprivation. I haven't slept well for years. No, uh, night school. And so I contacted uh, Stephen uh, in, in that, and he was very gracious talking about lucid dreaming. I really wish I could do it. It sounds phenomenal. I've only had one lucid dream in my life, which I woke up and I was in a shopping mall. I mean, in the lucid dream. And I was only partially in control. I mean, good lucid dreamers can do whatever they want. But I wasn't. I was only partially in control. And I saw myself, felt myself going to a shop to buy a shirt. And that was it. And I was so annoyed with my brain because I could have gone flying. I, I could have met a celebrity I've never met. I could have done all these amazing things. And instead, my brilliantly creative brain did a thing that I've done many times in real life and actually really isn't very interesting. So that is that. <laughs> That is my only experience with lucid dreaming. I love dreaming and I found it very helpful. I just can't get the lucid thing. I used to, um, I know it's, it's, it's terrible. I used to have night terrors. I used to suffer from night terrors a lot, which if people don't know, it's where you sit up, you've got your eyes open, normally it's about 90 minutes into the night and you scream out and you think there's a demonic entity there or something like that. And if you're sleeping next to somebody else, this wakes them up and they're properly awake at that point. You yourself are still in deep sleep and so you go straight back to sleep and they're sitting up shaking, going, oh my goodness, what's the problem? And they can't get back to sleep at all. So it's worse for them than it is for you. Yeah, I did um, had a lot of those for a while and that's what got really me interested in sleep. I was thinking, what is going on in my little head that I should see these demonic entities? Well, that's what's quite good about having those is that... <laughs> If you 90 minutes in, you can't sleep and you're a bit bored and you think, well, you know, let's make life a bit more interesting from a partner. You can sit up and scream. They wake <laughs> up and then you go back to sleep and pretend you're, you had a night terror. <laughs> the Upside of Night Terrors. That's right. Richard Wiseman. Now, that's, that's a great uh, book title. The Upside of Night Terrors is a great book title. <laughs> so I do not frequently have nightmares, but I had a night terror a few nights ago. And oh. I like woke up screaming and scared the shit out of my girlfriend, who then stiff-armed me like a reverse clothesline to try to keep me down because she's afraid of me lashing out and kicking her or punching her. Because this happens every six months or so. Yeah, uh, It was a very, very exciting evening. I will say on the lucid dreaming side, in my senior year of high school, I got to the point where I could actually practice my sport at the time, which was, let's call it Olympic-style wrestling in the U.S., would be collegiate-style wrestling. 
with a coach I'd never met at the time, who was John Smith out of Oklahoma, who was very, very famous. But I was actually able to consistently practice a skill that transferred. It seemed to have some transference to the real world, which I, I found almost unbelievable. Uh, I'm sorry that yeah, you were you were buying shirt and uh, it would be a uh, bummer if if I were to only end up doing my taxes when I uh, induce lucidity. But hold a second, I, this this yeah. means that you can lucid dream. I can. Yeah, but I I can lucid dream, but I will say that it is a very perishable skill. So I got to the point end of high school and then transferring over to say sophomore year in college where I could if I were journaling on a daily basis immediately upon waking and if you don't have any dream recall, trying to induce lucidity is pointless, largely. So those two seem to be closely correlated, or the development of one seems to be closely correlated to the other. Where I could induce lucidity pretty consistently, at least once a night, uh, it becomes easier during longer extended REM periods. So let's just say or very early morning, which is why some of the techniques have you wake up around 4 a.m. and then do a few things and go back to bed. But if I don't do the journaling, forget about it, then it's effectively non-existent. So uh, my non-creative mind sent me shirt shopping. I suspect you do far more interesting things in your lucid dreams. Other than practicing sport, what do you do? Oh, you can fly around and have sex with everybody. Those are kind of the two most common uh, <laughs> people are developing this. Those are where they usually self-indulge the most in the beginning. And my experience was in the very early stages, it was very similar to your shirt buying experience, right? You would have like a glimpse of lucidity doing something really mundane, and then you would wake up or you would slip back into non-lucid sleep. So it does seem to accrue. And there are, hopefully this doesn't make me sound like a lunatic. I think it's a very for me, at least through direct experience, like a very developable skill, you can begin to extend your periods of lucidity using different techniques that seem to have some reliable effect. It is a skill that is of great interest to me, but it takes so much work on the journaling training side that it's it's just generally not a super high priority. Also waking up at like four in the morning to to increase the frequency is not very appealing, given that I already have insomnia. What else have you learned about sleep and improving sleep? And why did you stop having night terrors if you stopped? Yeah, I did. Uh, they are related a little bit to anxiety and also related to being in a, a warm room. So actually, if you sleep in an icebox, essentially, they pretty much go away. In terms of night terrors, because you mentioned your girlfriend there to worried about you lashing out, I think receive wisdom is not to touch the person who's having the night terror because often they can interpret that as being the demonic entity attacking them and they will lash out. Uh, so keep, keep your distance. Uh, but often just saying the person's name gently uh, will will be sort of enough to bring them uh, kind of back. I'll buy my girlfriend some headgear and a mouthpiece. She'll be fine. <laughs> um, so it's that. In terms of the sleep stuff, there's all sorts of things you can do to improve your quality of sleep. One of the biggest ones that came out of night school, which I didn't know about, was if you've got kids who have recurrent nightmares, and this goes for adults as well, but particularly with kids, where it's the same nightmare every night. During the day, you get them to visualize the nightmare, but with a more positive ending. So if they're being chased by a dragon, they visualize that, and then you go, well, maybe it's a lonely dragon, it's a friendly dragon, he just wants to be your friend. And actually, that's got about a 90% hit rate within a very short period mm. of time for reducing those mm. recurring nightmares. Mm. So there's all this kind of simple stuff that's out there. I think all the stuff about this night of two halves and then actually taking a break in the middle is what we used to do before electric light and, 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 and so on. The paradoxical, if you're trying to fall asleep, the paradoxical approach, which is you try and keep yourself awake. So you're allowed to blink but otherwise, you have to keep your eyes open and you have to actively not fall asleep. It's quite exhausting <laughs> and you end up falling asleep quicker. Again, based on all sorts of research. So yeah, night school is a, a fun book to, to do. So then speaking to onset insomnia, which is something that I've suffered from for decades, and I go through periods of not having it be as acute an issue, but the, the initial falling asleep portion for people who don't understand the terminology. So there's the paradoxical yeah. approach of, I've never tried the keeping my eyes open part. That I haven't tried. Yeah, uh, So I may try great. that. Yeah, Icebox, I feel like I've got that pretty well dialed. 
yeah. use various devices to keep the bed cool. Any other suggestions? Busying the mind if it's based on anxiety. So, so just writing down those anxieties and worries often clears it before you, you go to bed. Uh, counting backwards from 103s feels working memory, basically, uh, and it means those anxieties can't get in. Engaging in fantasy world so that when the dreams and, and sleep comes along, it's a little bit more pleasant. And if you are laying there for more than, this is particularly waking up during the night, more than, say, 10 minutes, weighing, laying awake more than 10 minutes, get out of bed and do something non-stimulating but physical, like one of those kind of adult colouring in books, something like that. Do that for about 10 minutes, go back to bed. If you're still laying there awake 10 minutes later, get out and do it again. And after a couple of those, you start to fall asleep because what happens is you're, what you're not doing is associating the bed with the anxiety of being awake. Otherwise, that becomes a stimulus response. That oh, the, the bed is a place where I'm anxious. So moving yourself out and occupying the mind and going back, again, is, a, is another very effective technique. Next up, Dennis McKenna, an ethnopharmacologist who has spent more than 40 years researching the interdisciplinary study of Amazonian ethnopharmacology and plant hallucinogens. So let me ask you a question about a comment that you made in uh, the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss about LSD as a potential treatment for dyslexia. Now, I don't have all of the context, but I pulled this out, and this is going to lead to a broader question about perhaps unusual or unexpected applications uh, or indications for psychedelics. But this section here reads, it did lead me to speculate about the use of LSD as a potential treatment for dyslexia. We have a limited understanding of neuroplasticity to say nothing of how psychedelics might affect it. That man's anecdote, so of course I've omitted an anecdote, hints at the curious link between psychedelics and language, as do the more prevalent accounts of synesthesia I've discussed earlier. And then I'll actually read one more sentence. Psychedelics have some fundamental relationship to the way our brains create meaning and understanding out of sounds and images. Um, convinced that further investigations into this phenomenon would yield new insights. Could you expand on that? Because I would agree, certainly, with the assertion of this fundamental relationship. Any thoughts on LSD specifically as perhaps a tool for addressing dyslexia or psychedelics for any other indications that people might not guess? The connection to LSD and language, and I think even more so with mushrooms, because you're probably familiar with an essay, I think, by Henry Munn that was published in a book called, I think it was by Peter First, called Hallucinogens and Culture. This was around 1970. There's a wonderful chapter in there called The Mushrooms of Language. It's by Henry Munn, and it makes the point and again, like I talk about this in the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, it makes the point that in this be mushroom state, the poetry, the language becomes much more fluid. It just sort of flows out of you. And that's why these people can chant for hours and they're actually instantiating the mushroom as speaking through them. You know, this gnosis, literally this, the logos is the word, the true the pure logos actually flows through them. And then there's the phenomenon of synesthesia, which psychedelics, especially mushrooms, can reliably do. And, you know, I've the association with meaningful images with, with sound. Some people are naturally, genetically synesthetic. It's very interesting how their synesthetic experiences often have to do with words and numbers. And things like that. And they'll say things like, well, the number 13 is chrome-shaped and spiky, shiny and spiky. What? But for them, that's a reality. And I think, you know, I've argued that mushrooms, well, I have, Terrence have, lots of people have, that mushrooms were important in the origin of consciousness. And I think that it is this connection to language that, you know, consciousness what we understand as true consciousness depends on this construction of this worldview, essentially. And that's built on language, this artificial reality that we construct for, us, for ourselves that's a combination of sensory input that is filtered and processed in a certain way and linked to associations, memories, 
all of that kind of thing. So we build this, what the neuroscientists now call the default mode network, which is kind of ordinary consciousness, our ordinary state of consciousness. Long before I heard of the default mode network, I was calling it the reality hallucination. Effectively, we live in a hallucination. We live in an artificial world, reality that our brains construct. And it must reflect whatever is out there because we're not wandering around stepping in front of buses and things like that. So it does map to reality in some ways, but it's a it's actually an impoverished version of reality. What the a lot of what the brain does is filter things out, you know, and Huxley had this insight. He talked about the reducing valve. That, you know, to make the world comprehensible, you have to selectively filter what gets in. You inhabit this filtered, I could almost use the word curated version of reality. Otherwise, it would just be a blooming, buzzing confusion. You wouldn't be able to navigate. And then you can take a psychedelic. You can disable those mechanisms. You can disable this default mode mechanism open the gates of the reducing valve, and that can be very beneficial in terms of helping you get outside of your reference frame. And that's very useful. I think that that's what psychedelics, I think that's where the therapeutic effect really, for many of the things it's indicated for, it's this ability to step outside your reference frame temporarily and look at your situation from a different perspective but you wouldn't want to be there all the time, right? Because you wouldn't be functional. That's, again, why you have to be very selective about your set and setting. It's a complex topic because I think it does relate to the way that we link images, essentially internal images, to sounds and meaning. Because I'm here rapping to you. And I'm making effectively small mouth noises, which are inherently meaningless, except that we happen to share a language. And so when I make these small mouth noises, chances are your brain is reflecting it in terms of images. I say chair, you see a chair. I say star, you see a star. I mean, it's more complex than that, but I think that's the basis of cognition, really. And, and if you look at culture, if you look at, if, if you look at consciousness, it's all based on this relationship between sound, image, and, and meaning, or what they sometimes call portentiousness. Yeah, and ascribed meaning, right? It's a learned association that is not automatic, right? I think about this a lot with say, infants and language. And I'm sure there's someone who could comment on this much more intelligently than I can. But when an infant, let's say before they develop full depth perception and so on, if they were to look at what's in front of me, they wouldn't see laptop, webcam, microphone, wood table, etc., pile of papers as discrete objects until they have likely, uh, at least not to that level of fidelity until they have labels for those things. Yeah, exactly. right? It might just be a flattened sort of two-dimensional sheet of colors yeah. and shapes and shadows. I think about that quite a bit also, as you mentioned in the last episode that you've done who knows how many sessions with ayahuasca, you know, 500 plus. And it does seem that people develop or some people develop an ability to discern and see in those spaces in the same way that an infinite sort of develops the ability to, to discern between these discrete things that we have labels for as adults. Last but not least, Cal Newport, best-selling author of Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and A World Without Email, revisits the four-hour work week. Why in the interim, it's a mystery that I'm curious about. In the interim between when it first hits, work is unsustainable, you should try radical new things. In the interim, the over time, the book in pop culture beyond people who are directly engaged with the book got associated with something different. And, and I mentioned this to you via email, but I think about 2011, The Office 
brings up the book. Daryl brings up the book, the character Dale, in the office. And by that point in 2011, when he's bringing up this book, it has nothing to do with work being unsustainable and radically rethinking work. It is all just how do I be more hyperproductive, which is almost the opposite of what the book is about. And I bet that for a lot of people who the book was on their radar, but they didn't engage with the book, that's for a lot of people became associated with like being hyperproductive by using you sort of radically inventive in the systems you use for the purpose of getting more done, which is not what the book was about. And so this is sort of this mystery to me is that this big warning shot was happening. We feel it today huge. Yeah, work's not sustainable. We need to rechange it. But in between, somehow that warning shot for a lot of people got changed to um, how can we use tech and innovative systems to get even more done? Yeah, it's a damn fine question. You know, the four-hour work week became, and you know, I didn't mind. I thought it was kind of funny. This yeah, sort of pop culture productivity novelty. It's that word again. Novelty. <laughs> novelty, yeah, yeah right. in a way, right? So, you, you, so it shows up on The Office or the cast from, well, supposedly the cast, I mean, it's probably a bunch of ghostwriters, but from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, wrote a book called The Seven Secrets of Awakening, the highly effective four-hour giant today, <laughs> right? So you can see what that is. And I would love to hear your theory for why this is, but I think it's deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And it can be deeply, deeply challenging to really question the assumptions and plans that are the underpinning for much of your existence, your waking existence. Right? I think it's very uncomfortable. And it's not as cleanly measurable, perhaps, as installing a new Chrome plugin that helps you do A, B, and C. And I, I cleared 17% more email in the last hour. That type of trackability and that type of countability is really alluring. So the productivity porn, like real porn, is highly addictive and highly distracting. And as new technical doodads and applications and approaches surfaced, even if they're old approaches that are being reinvented, right, using note cards or index cards for various things, it's a very graspable appealing novelty that I think almost everyone gravitates towards. You know, it's not surprising to me that the four-hour work week became a representation of a collection of productivity tricks or techniques or technologies, because it, it did include that in fairness. But I think that what is unfortunate, but not surprising, is that the four-hour work week is sort of treated like a toolkit and a bunch of construction materials, but used without the blueprint and the approach and the guiding design principles that are explored in the first, say, two sections especially. Those two things right. are divorced, where in my mind, the blueprints and the design principles, those are the most valuable and most important piece. And then the tools, those are all going to change over time, and I expect them to change over time. That's what I've observed. Did you observe people doing that? You know, just looking at the hacks and not, or was it the the perception of the people who weren't reading the book, but just, this is what I think it is? Because you, you, of course, you're around this crowd a lot more. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. The book is written in a way, if you start at page one, you cannot get around the sort of philosophical resets and questioning of assumptions and design yes. principles. You can't get around 100% them. 100% true. But if you are reading a blog post that is supposedly a summary of the four-hour work week, or you are reading any number of books that followed the four-hour work week, which were intended to kind of capitalize on that wave of popularity, they focused almost without exception on the tools and the tricks and the latest websites, and the best virtual assistant services, and so on. Again, not to say those don't have value. They do have value. But without the underlying frameworks and principles, I don't think you end up solving many problems. And in fact, I think you can end up creating a lot of new problems.
And now here are the bios for all the guests. My guest today is Edward O. Thorpe. He is the author of the bestseller, Beat the Dealer, which transformed the game of blackjack. His subsequent book, Beat the Market, co-authored with Sheen T. Kasuf, influenced securities markets around the globe. He's also the author of A Man for All Markets, subtitle From Las Vegas to Wall Street, How I Beat the Dealer and the Market. Thorpe was one of the world's best blackjack players and investors, and his hedge funds were profitable every year for 29 years. He lives in Newport Beach, California, and his website is edwardothorpe.com. Com. Morgan Fallon on Twitter at Diamond Mo Fallon is a nine time Emmy nominated executive producer, director, and cinematographer who was born and raised in New England and studied film at Emerson College in Boston. First question is probably going to be what you learned and did not learn in your film courses at Emerson. After graduating, he spent three years working for his mentor, director Michael Mann. And in 2007, he began a long-term working relationship with producers Chris Collins and Lydia Tenalia and their New York-based production company, Zero Point Zero Productions. Through his tenure at ZPZ, Fallon focused primarily on work with ZPZ creative partner Anthony Bourdain on several episodic series and documentaries produced by Bourdain, including the Emmy-winning Mind of a Chef, the theatrically distributed documentary The Last Magnificent, and the Emmy, Peabody, PGA, TCA, and ACE award-winning series Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, which Fallon shot, directed, and produced throughout the series' 103-episode run. Currently, he is a director and executive producer for the Emmy-winning series United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. He lives in California with his wife and production partner, Jillian Brown, and his two children. You can find him like... I mentioned on Twitter at Diamond Mo Fallon, Instagram at Fallon.Morgan, and I'll include the Facebook and everything else in the show notes. And the website for 0.0 is 0.0.com. My guest today, I've been looking forward to for some time, although he may not know that. This is Richard Wiseman, who holds Britain's only professorship in the public understanding of psychology at the University of Hertfordshire maybe getting that right. He has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles examining the psychology of magic and illusion, the paranormal, luck, and self-help. His books on psychology, which include The Luck Factor, The Scientific Study of the Lucky Mind, and 59 Seconds, Think a Little, Change a Lot, have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. And his psychology-based YouTube videos, which I highly recommend, have garnered more than 500 million views. Elizabeth Loftus, I hope I'm getting that right, we'll find out which corrections I need to make, former president of the Association of Psychological Science, described Richard as, quote, one of the world's most creative psychologists, end quote, and the Independent on Sunday chose him as one of the top 100 people who make Britain a better place to live. In addition to his work in the field of psychology, Richard served as director of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for eight years. You can find him on Twitter, at Richard Wiseman, W-I-S-E-M-A-N. My guest today is a fan favorite, Dennis McKenna. You can find him on Twitter at Dennis McKenna4. Dennis has spent more than 40 years researching the interdisciplinary study of Amazonian ethnopharmacology and plant hallucinogens. He has conducted extensive ethnobotanical fieldwork in the Peruvian, Colombian, and Brazilian Amazon. His doctoral research at the University of British Columbia focused on the ethnopharmacology of ayahuasca and ukuhe, two tryptamine-based hallucinogens used by indigenous peoples in the Northwest Amazon. He is a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute, which has helped fund and directly funded a lot of very good science and was a key organizer and participant in the Wasca Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca used by the UDV, a Brazilian religious group. He is the younger brother of Terence McKenna. From 2000 to 2017, he taught courses on ethnopharmacology as well as plants and human affairs at the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. In 2019, in collaboration with colleagues, he incorporated a nonprofit, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. Currently, the Academy has several projects underway, with the most immediate being preparations for an upcoming conference in the UK, May 23rd to 26th, that's 2022, ESPD 55, we're going to talk a lot about this, which will cover a wide range of topics related to psychoethnopharmacology. Dennis emigrated to Canada in the spring of 2019 with his wife, Sheila, and now resides in Abbotsford, British Columbia. The website for the event that I just mentioned at ESPD55.com. 
In this episode, past podcast guest and excellent writer, Cal Newport, interviews me for an article he ended up writing for The New Yorker titled, Revisiting the 4-Hour Workweek, How Tim Ferriss's 2007 Manifesto Anticipated Our Current Moment of Professional Upheaval. So the call itself was for material. We were having a conversation for this print piece that ended up coming out. And I really enjoyed the conversation and thought you might as well. So who is Cal? Cal Newport. You can find him at calnewport.com, C-A-L-N-E-W-P-O-R-T.com, is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, who previously earned his PhD from MIT. His scholarship focuses on the theory of distributed systems, while his general audience writing explores intersections of culture and technology. Cal is the author of seven books, including most recently Deep Work, Digital Minimalism, and A World Without Email. He is also a contributing writer for The New Yorker and the host of the Deep Questions podcast. You can find my interview with Cal, me interviewing him, that is, at tim.blog slash Cal Newport, and you can find the 2007 talk at South by Southwest that launched everything. So my talk at that festival, my first ever keynote on the content and the concepts in the four-hour workweek at tim.blog slash SXSW. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.